Today on Blue 58, we'll briefly talk wide receivers, then spend some time with a very, very special guest who's written an incredible book about the Green Bay Packers. You should get it. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, happy to be with you here for another episode. We've got, like I said up top, a great guest coming up uh, later in the show. I do want to spend a second talking about something small, but I think interesting within this overall conversation that we seem to be having about the Packers wide receiver position. There is an ongoing debate about whether or not the Packers should trade for a wide receiver. We talked about that last week. Ultimately, I'm not super interested in that conversation. If they do, if they that person helps, if it's the right price, great. Um, there's ultimately not going to be a satisfying answer to that debate. The bigger question, I think, is why are, why are we talking about the Packers needing to trade for a wide receiver? And I think that is probably the more interesting question. And we could go a long time on that. But there's one quick short answer, I think, and that's because the Packers have just invested less and less in their wide receiver and tight end positions over the past few years. I don't want to get super deep into this because I really do want to get to the guests that we have today. Uh, but if you head over to my Twitter feed, at John Meerdink, I've, I've posted a link to some some research I've compiled with the help of the excellent app Flourish. Uh, basically, we're taking a look in this research at how much different levels of acquisitions are contributing to the overall percentage of passes caught by wide receivers and tight ends. So I've divided up the Packers pass catchers, uh, receivers and tight ends, into five buckets. Second and third round, fourth and fifth round, sixth and seventh round picks, undrafted free agents, and free agents. That comprises all of the pass catchers the Packers have had since Aaron Rodgers became the starting quarterback. Every player who has caught a pass as a wide receiver, a tight end, has fallen into one of those five groups. They have not ever traded for a receiver or a tight end. They have not ever selected one in the first round either. In the course of the time that Aaron Rodgers has been the starting quarterback, they have gradually gotten more and more contributions from those second and third round picks. So guys like Greg Jennings, Jordy Nelson, James Jones, Jermichael Finley, Devontae Adams. That peaked in 2012 and 2014. In those two years, second and third round picks caught 90% and 87% of the passes caught by wide receivers and tight ends. But since 2014, the percentage caught by high draft picks in Green Bay, has decreased almost every year. The only exception is 2015, and we all know what happened that year. Jordy Nelson was out with a torn ACL, so the number probably would have been fairly consistent. But in 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019, high draft picks, second and third round picks, have caught fewer and fewer passes in Green Bay, just because there's been fewer and fewer of them around. Another way of saying this is the Packers have increasingly relied on late round draft picks, undrafted free agents, and just traditional free agents to catch passes at wide receiver and tight end. Uh, 
Now, this isn't necessarily bad if those people are good players. And in some cases, the Packers have had good players there. But the best way to maximize value at any position is with draft picks. They tend to be the cheapest. You tend to have the best access to blue chip talent. And you get to keep them around, again, at a relatively low price for a fairly long time. The Packers have simply not invested many resources into those positions in the draft. They've spent a lot of it trying to fix their defense. That's paying dividends this year, but it's also leaving the Packers in a position where we have to do things like have debates over whether or not they should trade for a wide receiver. If things continue to go the way they are, the Packers will get their fewest catches, the the lowest percentage of catches from high draft picks this year than in any other year in the Aaron Rodgers era by more than 10%. Currently, they're on pace with Devontae Adams, still leading the team in receptions, to have just a shade over 33% of their catches come from a second or third round pick this year. The previous low was last year at 46%, and the, the low before that was all the way back in 2008, back in the days when Donald Driver was still regularly at or near the top of the Packers receiving stats. The Packers could use an in, in, injection of talent through the draft at receiver or tight end. If Jay Sternberger wasn't injured, this would be a little bit different. Maybe not a lot, but still a little bit different. And one draft pick does not really an injection of talent make. The Packers could really stand to invest here a little bit as Aaron Rodgers approaches the end of his career. It could make a big difference in their offense going forward. Check out that data. Let me know what you think. All right, now on to the real meat of this podcast. I am thrilled about what we have coming up next. I think this is not uncommon for a lot of people with a background similar to mine. You know, journalism-related stuff, uh, big into history, big into books. I've wanted to write a history of the Green Bay Packers for a long time, but it's a daunting prospect. It's 100 years long. There's all sorts of untold chapters, little twists and turns that affect the fate of the franchise. It would take a long time to do it really well. And, you know, life gets in the way. It's tough to devote that amount of time to to doing a project like this. But fortunately, a gentleman by the name of Mark Beach has gone ahead and just saved me the trouble. Because I will never have to write a Packers history book, at least not on the entire complete team of the Packers, to history of the Packers, as long as I live, because he's gone and done it for us. Mark Beach is the author of The People's Team, an illustrated history of the Green Bay Packers, an excellent, excellent book now available for your purchase. You should find a copy and check it out because it is excellent. Mark is here to tell us about it. Full disclosure, I did get a copy of this book from the publisher uh, for a review, but Uh, This is not a review. This is just an interview with the author about how he put together the book. My review is that the book is excellent. You should buy a copy. I'm looking into buying a couple for gifts because they're just that good. Anybody who's a fan of the Packers should check this out. So here's our interview with Mark Beach, the author of The People's Team, an illustrated history of the Green Bay Packers. I hope you love it. Mark, let's start with a real simple question. Just looking at this book, it's absolutely beautiful pictures are gorgeous. The text is outstanding. What, in your words, is 
the people's team? Well, the people's team is a description of, uh, you know, I think certainly, you know, the NFL's most significant franchise. So, you know, the, the Packers are, um, you know, even besides a couple of years in the 1920s, they were always from the smallest town in the league, and they still are. Um, and they're the only team in major professional sports in North America that are owned by their fans. You know, it's, it's a sort of a common thing in, in the in the Bundesliga and, and in, uh, you know, that uh, Real Madrid or, or Barcelona are, are uh, owned by their fans, but, but the Packers are unique in North America. Um, and that goes all the way back to almost their founding. You know, they were supported by the meatpacking industry in Green Bay for the first couple of years, and then Curly Lambeau and a few other guys actually owned the team themselves for one disastrous season before um, Andrew Turnbull, the publisher of the Press Gazette, stepped in and took over uh, and organized a public financing uh, plan for the team. Uh, that really, you know, the, the public financing, the, the stock sales, as we know them today, uh, now they're revenue generators, but but in the past they were they were team-saving things. There was one in 23 that, that preserved the team. There was one in 35 after a disgruntled fan basically sued the team into insolvency, um, you know, that saved the team. And there was one in 50, the 1950 that saved the team. So the, the people in the, in the team are bound uh, inextricably. And, uh, you know, the Packers aren't just bound to the people uh, of Green Bay, but they're bound to the land of Green Bay. You know, they're, they exist because of the rivalry between East and West high schools, which exists because of the, you know, Fox River, which divides the town into an east side and a west side. So it, it's a very, you know, in, in many ways, there's no team in pro sports in North America that's as much of the place from which it comes as the Packers. And they they really are, for that reason, I thought they deserved a a serious treatment of their history, you know, a, a you know, a, a impartial third-party look at, uh, you know, you know, from a, from a um, you know, real research perspective of, of what went into to making that team what it is today. It's an amazing story. Cliff Crystal, who's a, a team historian and was a longtime journalist in the Green Bay area, um, calls it the best story in, in sports, and he's he's pretty right. Of course, the people's team isn't the first Packers history book to ever be written. There have been many before. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. Why did you decide that this this book needed to be written? What was the the big decision that led you to say yes? I've got to sit down and put together a history of the Green Bay Packers. Sure, you know that one of the problems I had was that with a lot of these history books that are out there um, rely on the history books that came before them, um, and and they repeat the errors that are made in some of those history books, or they they take conspiracy theories from those history books and repeat them. Uh, and so there's a lot of unreliable stuff. You know, Cliff has really been untangling and, and perfecting, um, perfecting for one of a better word, the, the history of the Packers for real uh, on his posts for the team website. You know, he's been and he's been gathering strength through oral history for for over for almost two decades. You know, three decades. So that the the history of the Packers is something that really hadn't been told well that I could find since 1946 when Arch Ward published his history of the team. Arch Ward was the sports editor of the Chicago Tribune, um, you know, the founder of the All-American Football Conference, uh, the creator of the baseball all-star game. He was a tremendously important figure in the early, early, you know, century sports in America. Um, and his history of the Packers is very good and very entertaining and very engaging. But he relied a lot on, on the word of Curly Lambeau, um, who, was described by I think one 
longtime Packers, you know, journalist and later PR director is, is a congenital liar. Um, and so Cody Lambeau's history is, is somewhat not so good. Um, so there wasn't a good history of the team or of Lambeau, really, a biography of Lambeau out there. And so a lot of my work was, was firsthand digging through old issues of the Press Gazette, uh, old primary documents, you know, draft records and, and uh, draft cards and war records and, and things like that. Um, so I think, I like to think that this is a definitive history of a team that, that passes muster and, uh, you know, takes out a lot of the, the um, conspiracy theory and conjecture of, of previous histories. Now, myth and legend is kind of a big part of Packers history and not always, it's not always a bad thing. It makes for some good stories, but <laughs> as you've, I'm sure, encountered, it makes it difficult to, to write an accurate history. What were some of those myths that maybe you've had to correct through going through this this book? Well, there was a there was a myth that um, that George Hallis was in on getting the Packers kicked out of the league in 1922 uh, when they used uh, college players, they used Notre Dame players specifically, um, in a postseason game against. I think it was. Um, oh, I'm blanking on the, on the town it was against. It might have been. Uh, you know, it was a game played in Milwaukee. And it might have been against Sheboygan, but but the Packers used college players, uh, which was a no-no um, in the NFL. And one one of the reasons the NFL was created was because you know teams were were um, sort of bold about using college players in their games, and it was a you know one of the reasons that pro football was regarded as as a not so honorable enterprise by the greater by the general public, and one of the reasons it was less popular than college football. So the Packers were kicked out of the league for that, and. and uh, there was a conspiracy theory propagated that uh, you know George Hellis was in on the on the doing of that. When actually, from what I could find, he was not. As a matter of fact, you know, besides seconding the motion, uh, you know that, that uh, the Packers should be removed from the league in 1922 in January of 22, Hellis wasn't involved in that at all. Really, you know, there was it was public knowledge, and, and uh, the NFL found out about it from news reports. So that was one. Uh, another one was um, you know. It was a great story when, when Lambeau got the team reinstated before the 22 season in June that um, he'd sold his friend's car to pay for the, the doings. His cream-colored Marmon Roadster, as, as Arch Ford put it. Um, and, and that just, there's no evidence to support that, and it, it sort of falls into the category of too good to check. Um, but but that really seems to be a... Nobody knows how much the Packers paid to get back in the league, and, and nor will they ever know because it wasn't recorded. Um and so it seems to, you know, Lambo was certainly there and got it done. Um, but but there's no evidence that, that there was any sort of car sale or or anything like that that, that uh, made that happen. Now, despite the, the myths, the maybe misinformation or things that were just mistakes that got repeated, there's a lot, I think, of Packers history that has just been either forgotten or just was never known in the first place. But we still know a lot of the story, or maybe we feel that we do. Is there anything as you work through putting together the people's team that surprised you that you hadn't known before? Yeah. You know, one, one thing that's absolutely true is that um, in 1943 on the eve of uh, the season opening game against the bears, Don Hudson got word on his brother, one of his younger twin brothers who he knew was missing was a pilot in the South Pacific. Um, got word that his brother had been killed in action. Um, and on the same day received word that a few days after his family, he got that news his father had also died. And there was tremendous concern as to whether Hudson was going to, to play in this game against the Bears in 1943. Uh, and he did. And he wound up, um, 
you know, he didn't do much most of the game. But then, of course, he made three catches, two, three catches at the end of the game, including the tying touchdown that, that uh, you know, the, the Bears at that point were a juggernaut. They were like, you know, they just won an NFL championship and gone undefeated in another season and lost in the championship game. They hadn't lost a regular season game in almost two years. Um, and Hudson played that day and made a tremendous difference and didn't hang out afterwards. He flew home to Little Rock, uh, not to Little Rock, to uh, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, uh, to his father's funeral. And it was a tremendous, you know, courageous thing to do. And, you know, everybody was emotionally spent after Brett Favre threw four touchdown passes against the Raiders after he found out that his father had died. Uh, and I think it was 2003. But on a certain level, it wasn't nearly what Don Hudson did in 1943. You know, Brett Favre did his his feet against the Raiders. It was a, you know, fitting tribute to his father, but he did it against the Raiders, who had one of the worst defenses in the NFL. Um, You know, so it it was a a tremendously parallel moment that I don't think a lot of people knew about it. I certainly didn't know about it going in, but, you know, it just added one more, you know, thing to the Hudson legend, I think, that, that, um, you know, was already great at the time. History is of great interest to me. It's one of the things that I enjoy reading about the most, sports history or otherwise. But I'm also fascinated by the process of putting a book like this together. You've mentioned several different sources you've consulted, war records, draft cards, stuff like that. What was your process like as, as you put together this book? What were what were some of the areas you sought out? Well, you know, I was I was tremendously fortunate in that, that you know, that as we discussed, it was, it was, you know, good histories of the early days of the team were hard to come by. But the Green Bay Press-Gazette was, from the very beginning, the primary chronicler of that team, and they, and they treated it seriously with the, you know, with the, the seriousness that a, you know, a beat writer in the NFL would treat his job today, the Press-Gazette was doing in 1921. Um, so the Press-Gazette was a marvelous resource uh, for the early days of that team. Uh, there were some good books. Uh, there was a good book written about the um, early days of football in, in Green Bay, in the 20s, and, you know, I'm, uh, I'm blanking on the title now, but it was, uh, I think, uh, Dennis Collickson was one of the authors, and it was all about the town team, football in Green Bay. That was useful. Um, you know, the, the NFL encyclopedias that have been compiled by David Neft and Total Football were, of course, uh, very useful. And, you know, it, it's, it's just, uh, you know, the, the, the teams from Vince Lombardi's day were, or in some ways, you know, there have just been all sorts of books written about those those teams. You know, they've destroyed acres of American forest trying to get that team. Um, so that those were good resources. And, and as you get into the modern day, uh, newspaper accounts, um, there have been wonderful biographies of Brett Favre, including ones that Brett Favre wrote himself. Um, with, uh, I think, a, a press writer for, or a beat writer from the Green Bay Press-Gazette. Uh, those were good. But, you know, it... Looking into um, census records, uh, draft cards, uh, war records, things like that, you know, PRW records. I found out all sorts of things about Aaron Rodgers' grandfather getting shot down over Germany in his B-24 Liberator during World War II um, that I got from from uh, POW records, MIA records. Um, so there were all sorts of tremendously helpful, uh, you know, uh, resources that are out there that if you do enough digging, uh, you can find. You also mentioned a name earlier in our conversation that I think is probably indispensable in the story of, of or the process at least, of telling Packers history, and that'd be Cliff Crystal, who I think is 
virtually unique in professional football. He's the only team historian that I know of. There may be others. It may just be ignorance on my part. But what did he mean to this process? You know, well, Cliff is not only a part of Packers history. Um, he was a beat writer in the early 70s, and he was the first beat writer who was told, we want you to cover this team like a, like a reporter from a big city would cover his team. You know, until then, that was in 1971, I think, or 72. Until then, the, the Press Gazette has been very much married uh, to the Packers. And so Cliff was the first um, B writer to cover that team as a real NFL B writer um, in, in many ways. Um, and in his, his current capacity, you know, and, and to the Packers' great credit, they hired him, uh, I think, in 2014 to be their historian. Um, you know, Cliff, Cliff's work for the team website has been a marvelous, you know, corrector of the, of the record for the Packers. He's, he's corrected the record. He's published uh, enlightening interviews and enlightening stories about past players. Um, and he's just a, a, a sort of a one-stop shop for for people who are curious about what's going on with the history of the team. But, you know, the story I was telling him in many ways, you know, had been set right and was corrected before I got to it. Cliff and, and his lifetime of diligent work. You know, he's a Green Bay native. Um, he started out, um, he, instead of doing his homework at night, he would keep records for all four leagues of, you know, NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball, NFL, um, in notebooks. He would keep statistical records and, and pick his own all-star teams. Um, he, has, he has a severe case of writer's cramp now because he's been writing in notebooks for, you know, more than the last 50 years. He's, he's just a marvelous historian. He doesn't take anything for granted. He's very diligent about his uh, research. And so, you know, I think anybody who's, who's interested in Packers history, you know, and visits Green Bay, the Green Bay uh, Heritage Trail, the Packers Heritage Trail is a marvelous resource because it's all correct and it's all right and it's all enlightening. And I can't think of any place outside Boston that has a trail to the city where you can get the history of, in Boston, you're getting the early history of the United States. In Green Bay, you're getting the early history of the Packers. You probably have as good a perspective on this as anybody, and it, it's probably hard to narrow it down to one. But if there's one sort of seminal figure in Packers history, who's the first person, player or coach, that comes to mind for you? Uh, in Packers history, the first person who comes to mind, of course, is Curly Lambeau. Um, he willed that team into existence. Uh, you know, he got the original financing from the Indian Meatpacking Company. Uh, and then he kept it going through the force of his own personality and will um, in the early 20s. You know, he, he wrote in his, his high school quote, at, his high school yearbook quote at Green Bay East was, uh, I'm, after I get done with high school, I'm going out to conquer the rest of the world. Or after I get done with athletics. And in a certain way, he did that, you know, that... Green Bay Packers are known all over the world, and they exist purely because Curly Lambeau's, you know, he was indefatigable. He was unbeatable. He was, you know, he, he, he would not be denied. Um, and he turned that team into a, a real thing. Um, there were many other forces that, that came about to create the Packers. Curly Lambeau had a co-founder of the Packers, George Whitney Calhoun, a longtime editor at the Green Bay Press-Gazette. Um, but they exist and they continue to exist because of Curly Lambeau, uh, for better or worse in many ways. Um, and he's just a, he's a remarkable figure, incredible energy and incredible, uh, drive to make that team 
succeed. Of course, in the later days, you have Vince Lombardi, who I think the modern image of Packers history is is Ray Nitschke calling out defensive signal against signals against the Bears, and not so much Johnny Blood standing up against a hedge. But Johnny Blood was the first great receiver in the history of pro football. And, you know, Lombardi's Packers sort of usurped the Johnny Blood, Curly Rambo era Packers in a way. And, and um, it's unfortunate because the story of those early teams is, is uh, in many ways as good or better than Lombardi's Packers. Now, you don't have to sell me on the book. I've already got a copy of it, and I'm debating oh, whether or not I, could, I, I should justify getting another one because there are people in my life who I know would enjoy having it. But if, if I'm a Packers fan, what is the number one reason you think I should get a book like this? Uh, because it treats the history of the Packers uh, seriously. I try to be thorough. Um, so there's there's stuff in there about, you know, the there's you know, the first five or six chapters. It takes five or six chapters to get out of, chapters to get out of like the early nineteen thirties. Um, because I tried to treat the early history of the team with the seriousness and the, and the detail that it deserved. Um, and I tried to bring an impartial eye to the whole thing. So it's, I think, a definitive history of the team. You know, Cliff and the Packers, this isn't an authorized history, but Cliff and the Packers were both, uh, Cliff Crystal and the Packers were both wonderful. And they never refused a, a question or, a, you know, a, you know, plea for help. Uh, and, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it was created with uh, the diligence and reporting that uh, goes into, like, you know, I think the best journalism. But it was also created with a, you know, with a, a devotion to the, to the story that, that is uh, real and comes through, um, and I think that follows through all the way to the present day. The book is the People's Team: An Illustrated History of the Green Bay Packers. The author is Mark Beach, and he has been gracious enough to spend quite a bit of time with us today. Mark, I very much appreciate it. I hope the book does so well. Oh, thank you very much, and it was great to be here. Thank you so much, John. Twelve fifty-eight. A big thanks to Mark Beach for stopping by the podcast today. You can find his book, The People's Team, and Illustrated History of the Green Bay Packers. Just search that book title. You'll find your way to the best place to buy it. You should add it to your Packers bookshelf today. So I've got for you in this episode. Hope you like what you heard today. We will be back on Friday with a preview of the Packers-Lions Monday night game coming up. Until then, leave us a rating and review on the podcast listening app of your choice. Uh, check out our support page at thepowersweep.com uh, for other ways to support the show. Or failing either of those things, just leave us a question or comment uh, via Facebook, Twitter, or email. That, more than anything else, will help further our mission of helping everyone become a smarter Packers fan. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I've been your host, John Meerdink. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.